You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm Tristra Neuer-Jaeger, Director of Strategy at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music tech PR firm. What you're about to hear is one of the headline events from our last Music Tectonics conference in October 2021. Will Page, former chief economist at Spotify and author of Tarzan Economics, sat down with music technology consultant Vicky Nauman for a conversation on the reinvention and growth of the music industry during the pandemic. Vicky and Will kicked off the conference with a bang, and now we're sharing the audio from that conversation to give everyone a chance to revisit their insights in the new year. This will be our first keynote. It's a fireside chat. We've got Will Page, who's the author of Tarzan Economics. He's the former chief economist at Spotify, being interviewed by our good friend, a longtime supporter of Music Tectonics, Vicki Nauman. She's uh, with Cross Border Works Consulting and Advising. Would love to invite them on stage. Let's have some exclamation points in the chat. So good to have you guys. <laughs> welcome, welcome. And I'll hand it over to you. Thank you so much, Mitri. It's great to be here. It would be, um, I would be remiss to say that this isn't one of my favorite conferences. And whenever I talk to lots of young people getting into the industry, I always advise them to participate in this because it's all about innovation. Uh, I'm so excited to be here with you, Will. This is Will Page, former chief economist of Spotify and um, an all around maker of sense of this industry. So today, um, today what we're going to talk about is, you know, the industry maturation and growth that was partially spurred by the pandemic. Um, music is being integrated into all sorts of experiences, and everyone has been reinventing everything for the last year and a half. Um, we've, uh, I, you know, I don't know how many people have had a chance. I have a prop here to read Will's book, Tarzan Economics. Um, but I have been I have been diving into that, and I have to say, as someone who has been in the industry since the since the beginning of disruption, it was really fun to revisit the things that were such hot topics 10, 15 years ago, like you know, making sense of the long tail, the theory back then, and how it played out in rainbows from Radiohead when they released their their album as a pay what you will. Uh, Pepsi free downloads and um, and the one time lofty goal in the industry of getting a hundred million people to move from piracy into a 999 streaming model. Um, so, Will, welcome and thank you for all of your great work. Thank you so much. An honor to be here. So, we're going to dive into four. We have four big topics, but first of all, I want to ask you a little bit about your background. What what's going on there? Are you in Are you in your homeland? So I am. So I'm in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, my homeland. So the accent's going to be particularly thick, Vicky. So there will be subtitles. We've got Hopin to produce <laughs> subtitles on this one. Um, Scotland, well, most places in Europe for the Americans on the call have the famous Four Seasons. Uh, you know, Scotland's got two, winter and June, and it's not June, which means it's cold and wet outside. But also when the light changes, you'll see Edinburgh Castle behind me. And that's just to remind our Americans of a famous quote of the American tourists visiting Edinburgh. When they come out of the Edinburgh train station, they're graced with the castle, the old town, 600 years of history, the Georgian new town, 300 years of history, the Walter Scott monument, Ivanhoe, that's been there for over 200 years. 
the famous quote is, gee, isn't it great to build the castle so close to the train station? Which is a reminder of how Europe got built versus how America got built. But yeah, very soon when the light changes, you'll see Edinburgh Castle behind me. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Well, there's chalk one up for the for the American the American tourism industry. <laughs> In this country, that thing behind me got built first. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they were very close in proximity, right? In time. <laughs> um, okay. Well, welcome and glad to have you here from Scotland. And I will look for the I will look for the subtitles. I'll have my Google translate it at uh, at the at the ready. So let's talk about macroeconomics, because this is one of the things that is so wonderful about your writing and the way your brain works, in that we oftentimes get piecemeal information about the industry. We may get a you know, a report from the IFPI or the RIA about the master recording, the status of the master recording business. And maybe we get reports of PROs and their collection levels and then some spotty information about publishing but you have managed to make sense out of all of this and to pull things together in your global value of copyright as well as just ongoing analyses. So, so let's dive into that a little bit. Um, it's 2021 and the industry is growing. And I remember those early years where every, every gathering we would have would be about you know, how, to, how to stave off the fall. So it's particularly sweet for, for me to see this. Um, the, the numbers are growing and they're growing at faster rates. Um, investors and everyone who has capital has definitely paid attention to this, to this industry. And we're also seeing what is almost like a post DSP or post Spotify economy. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me, tell me a little bit about what you're, what you're observing in the, you know, just the, 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 the big macroeconomic picture. 100%. So I, it, you're right, it's growing. But I think the first point to flag is if we stick with the label side, which is the easiest side to understand here. In the US, the numbers aren't just growing, but they're growing at faster percentage rates. And what I mean by that is typically big numbers grow at slower rates. You get saturation in the market, but we've never seen growth of 27% before up until now. So we're talking about a, a six-year recovery. And one very interesting twist to that story is, yes, the global music industry is becoming bigger, but for record labels, it's also becoming more American. The American share of the overall business has gone up from just over a quarter to well over a third now. So it's very interesting how globalization has seen America make up a bigger share of the business. Now, a bit more complicated is to start threading the entire beast together. And I call this three jigsaw piece puzzle. You've got labels, you've got collecting societies, and then you've got publishers. And for the sixth year, I've done this exercise, which is to throw the two, all three pieces together, rip out all the double counting, you know, get to grips with all the spaghetti, and uh, work out what the global value of copyright is. That's in process now. You're going to be hearing about this later this week. CZEC will report their numbers. But kind of to give a teaser of where you're going to find this, I think we're going to see an asymmetric shock hit the music business. Okay. And what I mean by that complicated, wonky language is what's going to be felt on one side of the fence is different from what's being felt on the other. So for the labels and the artists with no CDs or downloads to drag its growth rate down, they're going to race away. They got all the upside. Then if we look at the side of the fence, which is publishers, collecting studies and um, songwriters, 
I think they're going to be hit by general performance. So I think you're going to see labels and artists up close to 10%, songwriters, publishers, and collecting studies down close to 10%. And that's going to be a very interesting twist, as you know, with a lot of political developments out there right now, uh, a very interesting twist to report on. I'm hoping to get that public in mid-November. And uh, if people want to see last year's effort, just go to tarzaneconomics.com slash undercurrents, and you'll find the last piece of work as well. But haven't we seen some reports coming out of, you know, all-time high collections and, you know, from some of the PROs and collectives? You have, but you have to remember how it works in 2020. So if those restaurants are locked down, there's nothing left to collect for ASCAP. But for the record labels, they were never collecting from those restaurants in the first place. So it's exposure to upside and exposure to downside. This is the asymmetry that we're dealing with here. I mean, it will recover, but for the time being, you've got an interesting situation where two ships are essentially passing each other in the night. In the night. Well, and we also have um, we also have a um, a phenomenon now where we've got uh, you know we've got emerging uses that are also probably you know lots and lots of sync, right? And so that synchronization where everybody gets 50-50, that, that's a huge part of the publishing and the publishing side of the business. Absolutely, this thing is becoming more and more relevant. How you classify it though, I don't wanna to get too technical here, but one man's sync in America is another man's broadcast mechanical over here in Europe. So you have to be careful in definition. Without doubt, the more resources you deploy to sync, the bigger the sync licensing team, the more sync revenues you're gonna achieve. And so are, are we seeing, uh, you know, I don't want to get into too deep in the rabbit hole, but are we seeing, um, are we seeing a, a battleground where you think all of these, all of these pieces are going to start to start jockeying when you start to see this asymmetry that there's a jockeying for greater rates from one side of the business and, you know, and legislative, legislative efforts to try to balance things out. On both sides of the pond, Vicky, on both sides. I mean, here we just had the conclusion to a lengthy UK inquiry where people have been arguing for the same share to go to songwriters and publishers that's going to record labels and artists. And over there in the States, you've got the, the, the ugly head of the CRB emerging again. It's like in Scotland, you say painting the fourth railway bridge. As soon as you finish painting one end, you have to start again at the other. We haven't even finished the appeals process for the last CRB and we're about to go into our second one. But I think it's really interesting to take stock of where these companies have come from in this very short space of time. So you've already seen the kind of this very aggressive US litigation culture that you have in terms of like the name calling and calling out what rates should be and what they shouldn't be. Um, but just some rough math. I mean, I'm working out that Spotify right now is a billion euros a year to songwriters, publishers and their CMOs. And 10 years ago, that's gone from zero to a billion. And then if you work on like a comparable for that, I looked at the last CZAC report, albeit referring to 2019, they talk about digital going from half a billion five years ago to one and a half billion today. So there's one company in Stockholm making this huge contribution to songwriters, collecting studies, publishers alike, essentially entering a very sort of heated litigation argument with publishers about where rates should be. I just think it's worth taking stock about the sheer size of the value that's being transferred to copyright holders as a result of the success of streaming. Take, take, take a time out to acknowledge that is all I say to the people who are shouting in the courts right now. Well, billion dollars, that's a big, that's a big, big number. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I also think about how simpler, how much simpler the pie was when the, when some of these norms were established, when it was, 
radio stations and you know who pays who pays what to whom from radio and then the sale of the sale of physical goods you know that's that's pretty simple and maybe it was a little bit more you know maybe it was simpler back back in those days where you didn't have to plan about technology coming and figuring out well what's the royalty rate for you know and what's the right split for all of these different uses but yeah. um, yeah, I always use the analogy of we're designing a plane while we're in flight. Nobody knows what we've created here. Ralph Simon put it best. The music industry is all about what happens next. It always has been. I love that twist to that quote that he always gives us. But yeah, we're we are essentially working this one out as we go along. So it's not just how do we set the rates for streaming, but you know, you've got a whole new post-Spotify economy coming down the pipe as well. If I can offer one quick comment on vinyl, if this was in London, I'd have my vinyl record collection behind me, not Edinburgh Castle. But I'm absolutely adamant that it's the people paying £120 a year to access streaming are the same people who are paying in America $25 a shot to buy a gatefold vinyl. It's the same people buying both. And I'm also pretty sure that the vast majority of vinyl being sold today is to customers who don't have a record player, but we can go into that later. <laughs> Fascinating. So let's let's do it. So let's talk about the maturing digital music economy that, that, that we're living in. Um, so when we, you know, as we just referenced, previous era, we had radio as the baseline, and then we had all sorts of different geographic, um, you know, selection, little record stores, but it was pretty simple back mm -hmm. in those days. And now I almost see Spotify and DSPs as replacing radio as the baseline, meaning everyone can really have access to it. You can have a free account, you can have a paid account. Everyone's really going to be able to access this, this huge collection of music. But now we have all of these, you know, more niche and lean in experiences around games and online fitness, social video, UGC, where music is being integrated into everything. Um, what are the dynamics here? Are, I, I, you know, we've used this term post Spotify economy. Um, are, 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 is this actually happening now where there's enough diversity that it is not so dependent upon that one 999 streaming model? I think so. I think it's happening at pace. Uh, just when you thought you understood how the streaming model was going to work, along comes something next and makes Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Premium, Luke Passe. And remember, we're now approaching the 20th year anniversary of the 999 price point, which I confirmed, I fact-checked it, will be the 1st of December this year. That's when Rhapsody got its 999 price point. So 20 years of the bulk standard conventional 10 pound a month, $10 a month deal, we're seeing a new business model come at pace. Now let's think about it from an attention perspective, first of all. Attention is scarce, there's only 24 hours in a day. And attention is stackable, but it's binary. So if I'm gaming, I might not be consuming music. If I'm watching Netflix, I'm not consuming games or music this contestability that you have to consider with attention. I think there's two strands to consider here. One is to look at what's happening in the gaming world, and secondly, what's going on with TikTok. So if I look at gaming just very quickly, gaming's doing more revenue in one month than music streaming is in one calendar year. And they don't focus on monetization. They optimize for engagement first, monetization second. And I'm really impressed with the team at Warners, especially Uana and Alex over there at Warners, the digital team and what they're doing. In Scotland, we have this expression of you can take a horse to water or water to a horse. Now, I think it's 
unfair to assume a business that's 10 times bigger than you is going to adapt to your weird world of spaghetti licensing royalties and contracts. So the mindset that I've seen happen there is they're going to take their world over to gaming. So let's stop talking about music and gaming. Let's talk about music in gaming. That's the distinction we're trying to pull off. And just anecdotally, they're doing quarter of a billion dollars on a ramp rate on an annualized basis from new emerging market revenue sources. And that could overtake the conventional revenue sources we all debate today by 2025. So I think it's fascinating to think about gaming. And for my own part, I've done work on Twitch, a publication called Twitch Rockonomics. We can get that out to the delegates here, uh, twitchrockonomics.com. And there, just to look at just how platforms are growing on top of platforms. That's fascinating. So there's many artists, case studies in that report, but one especially is Travis and Ali, who go by the name of a couple of streams. They're using Kickstarter and Patreon on top of Streamlabs, on top of Twitch to generate revenue that goes directly to them in real time. So gaming is interesting because we're bringing music into the gaming ethos, making music adapt to the gaming culture. TikTok is also really interesting too. Um, I was working on you know, what I could bring to this discussion and I'm really fascinated with Fleetwood Mac. Uh, 82.6 million views of that video on TikTok of Fleetwood Mac, of a guy hanging off the back of the truck with a bottle of soda, singing along to it. Over 750,000, three quarters of a million impressions, that's remakes of that video on TikTok. Incredible work, but then you've seen what's happened there is, it's created streaming uplift, it's created vinyl uplift, this, the conversation starts with TikTok and then it carries on elsewhere. This is clearly additive to the business. So again, it's really impressive to see how the music industry is trying to figure this out. I know the, the conversation starts with TikTok. We're going to need licenses to monetize where that conversation is beginning. Well, it also seems like this is a, um, you know, this is also part of the maturation of the industry where, you know, it wasn't that long ago that a lot of things that were in back catalog we're not digitized and we're not even out in the in the streaming services and so now we have generations you know when i talk at universities and i start talking about how i got started in this in 1999 it strikes me it feels like yesterday but i look around the room and i think oh my gosh half the people half the people in this room were um were not even born and the other half were you know maybe in diapers when i when we were starting all of this so we have people who are avid streamers who just have never experienced a lot of the Fleetwood Mac and the back, you know, some of these legacy artists. Vicky, let me take your astute observation and raise you for a second. I think it goes further. Earlier, I said the vast majority of people buying vinyl don't have record players. And even if they do, I doubt they listen to them. But I think with Fleetwood Mac, it's really interesting to play around with this for a second. Of those 82.6 million video views on TikTok of a guy hanging off the back of a truck singing a Fleetwood Mac song, you could have a situation next year where Fleetwood Mac perform in stadiums to fans who have never listened to an entire Fleetwood Mac song from start to finish. All they've got is a melody. Now that might make you worried, like that's not how music works. There's an art to songwriting. But if that sells out a stadium, you've got to do that dance. So it's really staggering to try and think about where this business is going now. We've gone from songs getting shorter, courses being moved to the front to adapt to the rules of streaming, now we're going from a much shorter thing called a 30 second clip on TikTok, which is going to you know, notch up 82 million views and be selling out stadiums of people who don't even know how a song is structured. Welcome to the music industry in 2021. Buckle up. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's talk about a couple, a couple of really important verticals that have, mm -hmm. um, that have emerged in the last few years. So podcasting and live streaming. So 
where are we with live streaming right now? We're just starting. I mean, I've been to a few shows. It's been great. I don't care. I'm masking up. Bring a, bring every vaccination card. You need my. Do you need my measles inoculation? Do you need? When have you used Apple Wallet this much? I mean, it's it's on the go all the time here in Britain. Here's my pass. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Whatever it takes to get live music back. Um, so what's happening? What's the dynamics there? Is this is live streaming now that it's just kind of part of the part of the mix? Is this going to be for super fans? What do you what is your what is your opinion about that? Yeah, so the, the Twitch report that I did, twitchrockonomics.com, I mean, it starts with a very pertinent question, which is all the advancements we've had in live streaming are not going to disappear when live music returns. So the question we've got to ask is, how do you coexist? That's it. You know, like it or hate it, we've got to wrestle with that coexisting question. And to put some color around that, last year I got to work with Billie Eilish's team on the data behind her live streaming concert, which was great. I mean, an absolute once in a lifetime opportunity for me there. But that made me wonder, you know, perhaps in 2022, what we'll see is 5 million people live streaming Billie Eilish backstage before 50,000 people see her on stage. That's not too implausible. We may see tour routes differ because live streaming is producing data of cities which love that artist more than the Arctic lorries that are driving around America would have thought in the first place. Maybe you've got a big audience in Cincinnati, but you've never toured in Cincinnati before. So I think tour routes could change as well. But the coexistence question is interesting. Now, I can talk a lot about live music in the UK. I don't know how relevant that's going to be to an American global audience. But one thing I have noticed is that the festivals are selling out in record time. There's no problem selling out festivals. The arenas have been soft here in this country. So you've seen some major artists, I won't name names here, but just to understand the situation, delaying their arena performances. And that might be that fans are more than happy to get back out in a muddy field and enjoy a festival, but they're still unsure about going inside a air-conditioned arena to enjoy those shows. So I think, again, we could see divergence. I talked about divergence at the start of the conversation with you know, recorded going up and collecting studies going down, I think we could be seeing the same thing happen within live, where the outdoor events race ahead and the indoor events just have to be a bit more patient in terms of how they come out of this pandemic. Yeah, I think that I think it actually makes logical sense because we also, you know, we're also just craving community. We're craving being around other people. And mm-hmm. when you go into when you go into a closed venue, what do you do? You know, you go in with your mask, you sit down, you watch the show and then you leave. There's not there's not as much of a social element there as there is with the festival. Yeah, absolutely. And when, you know, you, you have a, you have a billboard, um, you had a billboard article about this and you also have a, you also have a, a study that you did about the UK live music industry. I don't know whether or not we could share that graphic, but I'd love to, have, you know, at least talk through, talk through what, what you, what you are observing there. I will attempt the first ever screen share on Hopin. Let's try this out um, and explain what people are, are, are looking at here. Um, so if we go to this, and hopefully this is all visible. Um, yeah, I got to work on various things in the British live music industry. And I'll just let this roll and I'll introduce what's going on here. Um, I was able to work on event insurance for HM Treasury to make sure that we had the, the evidence base to understand you know, how much live music industry is worth, 1.7 billion in consumer spend. That's what was at stake, but also how it was made up. And I split the business up into six tiers, tier one, festival, stadiums, outdoor events, different risk profile from indoor events for event insurance, 
two arenas, three theaters, four nightclubs, five classical and six others. And then I also got to work out the value of these events as well. And this is just a really beautiful infographic here. And this is really to show data science at its very, very best here in terms of what I can do here is plot by postcode where the British Light Music Industry took place. It's fascinating. 62,000 events happened in 2019, a lot less than that in 2020. But you'll see here, as we go through 2019, we're in April, May, June. You can see that big blob down in the southwest. That's Glastonbury. Now we're going into 2020. If you watch the ticker at the top of the screen there, February, March, pandemic hits, boom. And you can see right there how live music got silenced in the UK. This is just very helpful for policymakers in terms of understanding if I am going to ensure this business so it can get back on its feet again so this artist can start getting paid again, this is what was at stake. So it's a really beautiful use of data science. I know we've got a lot of people interested in data on the call, and I thought this would be a very interesting way of showing the power of data for the music industry. Cutting edge stuff. Amazing. Coming off um, so I wanted to ask you just a quick question about another interesting thing, which is podcasting. You know, this is one of the overnight, overnight success. Involvement. Nobody knows anything. Whatever <laughs> I'm going to say is going to be BS because nobody understands anything with podcasting, but fire away. <laughs> well, it, it's a, um, you know, it, people have started paying attention to it in the last probably three or four years, but mm. it's been around for 14, 15 years. Is it just radio deconstructed? I mean, where where does where does this fit into the the music landscape? Well, one, the word itself is problematic. Why on earth are we merging an iPod with a broadcast to describe something that doesn't require iPods, nor is it a broadcast? So the name is very problematic, especially if you're a Brazilian or Indonesian, which are big podcasting markets, they wouldn't even know what these terms mean. So we have a problem with the language, but it goes further. It's not just you know, a dinner table chat about language, it's deeper. If you ask the industry, is YouTube a podcast? The answer is pretty much no, we don't consider YouTube a podcast. If you ask the consumer, is YouTube a podcast? They say it's their favorite source for podcasts. So the consumer and the industry are misaligned in terms of the language as well. Language aside, I got five fingers on my hand. Let me give you five big what ifs for podcasts. One is um, podcast subscriptions. You know, okay, we get it. People want to do, like with Twitch, direct subscriptions to your channel on Twitch. It's an over-the-top model to monetize directly. How about a direct subscription to my podcast? I'm confused by what signal that sends the advertising market if the best podcasts are going to be paid to avoid adverts. It's a very confusing signal for a nascent business. Two, what about podcast music licensing? It's still impossible for me to do a podcast about Stevie Ray Vaughan and include a Stevie Ray Vaughan song. Three, what about podcast piracy? It's entirely possible I can use Anchor to scrape Vicky Nyman's podcast from all the ad revenue and take it and put it under my own name and advertise against it. Four, what about podcast liability? You know, what if I say something offensive and it's a direct subscription? Who's liable, me or the platform? And then five, what about podcast cannibalization? I mean, I've got a book out. I've been through that journey before. But is it going to be the case that podcast sales go up? and book sales go down. So there's five big what ifs. And back to my earlier remark, nobody knows anything here because I don't see enough intelligent conversation about these five big what ifs in terms of where this business is going to end up. That's kind of what makes it exciting. No, there's no textbook on the shelf telling you where this business is going. We have to design the plane while we're in flight. But I would like to see a bit more attention taken to those key five points regarding podcasts. That's amazing. And I, I completely agree with you about the podcast music licensing. There have been 
various efforts at this. And I think a lot of companies that have tried to build something around it have found that they can't make sense of the podcasting market. You know, they can't make sense of, of this really, really extraordinarily long tail of creators and then a handful of big companies. But but how how do you measure? How do you license it? It's really, really problematic. I think, Vicky, you, knowing your career over the past two decades, you'd be a great ombudsman, slightly sexist term and here in the UK, but a great ombudsman to work out a path. But if I can throw one slightly technical idea out about how to solve this, podcast music is not, repeat, not on demand because you would hear it where somebody places it in the podcast. So if you enter this podcast licensing debate of how do I get an on-demand music license for a podcast, it's not. It's closer to a simulcast which takes you back to the origins of Sound Exchange almost two decades ago. And look at the market they built out of nothing with that. Now, I want to hammer this home to rights holders on the table, to which I am one, which is if at the margin Vicky Nauman decides to listen to a podcast, not a song, then she's giving up 40 minutes of time as opposed to four. If that's where the attention is going, don't you want your music to follow? Back to what Warners are doing. They're thinking about attention economics as the first fork in the road you got to tackle. This applies to podcast licensing as well. If time is going to podcast, then you want music in that podcast, licensed in that podcast, monetized in that podcast. And you know, the first podcast came out in 2003. We still don't have a music license today. It's a bit of an embarrassment, actually. Well, let's, um, I wish we had more time because mm -hmm. so many things that I could ask you about, but there were, there were a couple of things in your book that I wanted to I wanted to raise that really resonated with me, and the reason that I want to bring these up is not only um, I always think about the next generation, the the younger people who are getting into the industry. What kinds what kinds of tools and insights can we lend to them? But also the world of startups, and this was around there are two topics here. One is rational versus pivotal thinking. This is such an important thing. Can you? please just discuss, uh, just explain to the audience a little bit about your findings in that. The best way to get to that one is to look at a letter I had published in The Economist about a month and a half ago, which got me into all sorts of hot water. I got many phone calls from regulatory authorities, but I was referring to an article which was talking about how European competition authorities are competing to regulate tech. So the French authority is, I'll regulate Facebook. And then the European Commission says, no, 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 out of the way, I will regulate Facebook. And I just love this article because it reminds me of one of my famous quotes that I use in that chapter, Pivotal Thinking, which came from this very eccentric character in British politics, screaming Lord Such from the Monster Raving Looney Party. This guy would campaign at by-elections. I think he lost 48 by-elections. He'd wear these colorful clothes, a big rosetta. He had crazy policies. Um, some of his policies became law, more technology in that, reducing the voting age, deregulating commercial radio, all loony logic policies that became law. Others less so. My favorite one was he wanted to invent a 20-pound note that if you dropped it in a puddle, it wouldn't sink to the bottom. That way you had a floating currency. Economists <laughs> might call that joke. And But what he always said was we need two competition authorities. That was always in his manifesto. We cannot give the job of regulating competition to a monopoly. It doesn't work. You need competition for ideas of how to regulate monopolies. And a great example to think of pivotal thinking is if you were to borrow £9,000 to study at London School of Economics this year, they would say that a monopoly reduces output and increases costs. That's Econ 101, as you say. That's not what happens in tech. Tech monopolies expand output and reduce cost. 
how much money have you actually given Facebook? I mean, you compensate them through your time and attention, but they are expanding output and reducing costs. And the key point with pivotal thinking is to recognize that today's textbooks are no longer fit for purpose. Today's regulatory mindsets are no longer fit for purpose. And as this question of how do you regulate tech looms large, I really want to recite what Screaming Lord said, which is we need two competition authorities. We really do. We can't have a bunch of monopolists in the middle saying here are the rules based on the textbook that's no longer fit for purpose. Amazing. And um, and the the other thing is builders versus farmers. Um, mm -hmm. This was really important. And I think that, you know, in my life, I definitely have, you know, I'm mostly a builder. I'm mostly a builder. And when I'm in a farmer role, I'm really, I'm really, really frustrated. So this is such an important piece to like what career path you want to go on, which kinds of roles you want to strive. You're young, you're starting out in the industry. Explain the builders versus farmers a little bit. Well, of all the quotes I got in support of the book, the one that meant most was from Adam Grant, which I assume would need no introduction to people watching this, but his TED talk on givers and takers, it kind of gave me a taxonomy of who I am in the workplace. I love developing young data science talent and turning them into great economists. That's what I love doing at Spotify. Um, Joe Marpareth, you know, he came into my team. He was vice president of playing table tennis. Now he's a product manager at Apple. I love playing a part in that story. And uh, builders and farmers just captures where you belong in the lifespan of a tech company. That's the key thing because you don't belong forever. And as Spotify was going public, what I was seeing were the builders were leaving, the people who work without frameworks, who like risk, who like designing a plane once it's in flight, and the farmers were coming in, the people who operationalize and stabilize a company and allow it to reach its new heights. You need both, but you need to know when one has to move on and the other needs to move in. And that was the key thing there, is to bring that organizational psychology, a subject which is just not enough conversation about. We should have a whole session on that here at Music Tectonics next time, mm -hmm. to bring that topic to life, to understand where you belong. Because if you're a builder in a farmer role, you're going to be frustrated and that disrupts teamwork. You need to move on. And I love watching people in tech who get to the top of a mountain and then decide that's their time is up and they go right back to the bottom and start a new startup company again. They're builders. And it's a, hopefully that chapter for people reading the book will give them a sense of who they are and will make them more at ease with where they are in the workplace. Um, so, Will, what's next? Do you have, is this a, do you have another book in you? What, what are you thinking? Well, my school teacher used to say, is it time you turned over a new leaf, Mr. Page? Ha, 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 playing on the surname. You could apply that here. And no, I'll give two bits of advice to anybody thinking about doing a book. Or if you have friends or family thinking about doing a book, very quickly, on the way into the journey, which was September 2019, I traveled back here to Edinburgh to see James Anderson, who you know is the biggest liquid shareholder in Tesla after halving his stake. And he has a huge chunk of Spotify. And I'd worked with him throughout the whole journey. And I said to him, James, I just want you to know that in a month's time, you'll be hearing the news that I'm going to step down from Spotify and start full-time work on the book. You know, I spoke to my parents, they're supportive. Daniel, he's supportive. This is what I want to do. I want to write a book. And he said to me, you're writing a book? And I said, yes. He said, that's a terrible idea. It's like playing tennis with yourself. <laughs> and to know what the journey is like, for someone who's gregarious and likes company, it's like playing tennis with yourself. It's lonely. On the way out, so we're going here to January of this year, I learned that somewhere in the middle of England, there's a factory producing 30,000 copies of my book. And I'm like crying and I call up Adrian Furnham, a very established 
psychologist, organizational psychologist. He's got 40 books to his name, 5,000 published papers. And like Adrian, somewhere in England, somebody's making 30,000 copies of my book. I don't believe it. My parents are going to have a published author as their son. This is it, Adrian. It's going to happen after all this time. I'm going to be published. And he said, well done, Will. Well done. You're clearly very talented and the book will be a great success. Now I want you to sit down in your chair. I sit in my chair. Reflect for a minute because you're about to learn what it means to be a sperm donor because that's all you are. <laughs> and that was a beautiful way of you think it's all about what you've created in those 18 months. That's just one sperm on a Petri dish with 79 others and hopefully one of them will find an egg. And it's a beautiful reality check of what it's like to actually get published, to be part of the conveyor belt of big publishing. So playing tennis with yourself as you go into the business, learning what it means to be a sperm donor as it comes out of the business. So hopefully this sperm is going to find an egg. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I can't really top that for wrapping up this fireside chat, but thank you so much, Will. And Dimitri, thank you for having us. Uh, that was that was a great conversation. The chat has been going crazy. Make sure to take a look at it. There's a, a lot of interesting conversation about podcast licensing right now, but a lot of questions, answers, conversations going on there. And this is meant to be super interactive. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Thank you so much, Vicki Nauman, Cross Border Works, and Will Page, uh, author of Tarzan Economics. You've got a podcast coming out too, don't you? Yeah, we've got a podcast running just now called Bubble Trouble, which explains itself. But we're looking at hyper competition, which is just this really interesting concept of what point when quantity goes up, does quality go down? You know that two new podcasts are being launched onto platforms every minute. So since me and Vicky have been talking, this is not episodes, this is shows. We've had about 80 new podcast shows get launched onto platforms. It's incredible. Like some choices better than none. But does it follow that more choice is better than some? So we're really deep in the woods of that theme. So I encourage folks to check out bubbletroublepodcast.com. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know you can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.